0: You are listening to a message from SoundWords. To find information about our ministry, please visit our website at soundwords.org. You can also download our free app from iTunes or Google Play to access more great sermons. We're going to get back to our study of Jude, and we're getting near the end of the study of that short book. Where are we going then? I can't wait to find out. (laughs) I do want to talk about in the coming days some of the issues that I think are pertinent for our day. So we'll be doing some of that perhaps after Jude. And Jude is pertinent for what is going on in our day. Before you get into Jude, I want to direct your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just one verse. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, verse 14 for the sentence. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And I think important for us not to lose sight of the fact, the turmoil of the day and all the things going on that grab our attention, want to be reminded that the church is the household of God. This is God's family. And what a blessing it is to be part of God's family. He indeed is our Heavenly Father. And as a local Bible-believing church, we are to be a family under his authority and want to please him. Paul said he was writing so that we would know how to conduct ourselves in God's family and as God's family. It's the church of the living God. It is comprised of those who have entered into the salvation he provided in jesus christ you don't get into the church so to speak through baptism through communion through signing a paper to join or even attending you are born into god's family and when you are you're part of the church which is his family his family meeting in this place As there are other churches meeting in a variety of places around the world. Together we comprise God's family. This is God's family in this place. And we are the pillar and support of the truth. God is a God of truth. He's the God who cannot lie. So we are a testimony and a pillar to support the truth of God what God has revealed what God has made known we don't want to lose sight of that on all the ups and downs and turmoil and fears and changes that go on in the world we have the unchanging God who has established us as his family in this place to be a pillar in support of the truth To be focused on the truth, to be faithful to the truth, to proclaim the truth, which is light in a world of darkness. I mention that as a background because as you come back to the book of Jude, that little one-chapter book just before the book of Revelation at the end of your Bibles, written by the half-brother of Jesus Christ, Jude. Think about that. Raised. In the family, with Jesus Christ as your half-brother, the child of Mary, but not of Joseph, but raised with Joseph as the physical head of that family. Jude was not saved, as we have seen, until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of that. You're raised in the presence of the Son of God, Who has been born into the human race. You grow to adulthood. And you don't recognize and believe that he is the Savior of the world. The Messiah of Israel. But by God's grace, Jude was saved. And now he writes this letter. And he writes it as a slave of Jesus Christ. A brother of James. Who was also a half-brother. A recognition of the exaltation of Christ. Christ. And he's writing out of a concern for the spiritual health and well-being of God's people, God's family, God's church, if you will. Because serious things are happening. He said in verse 3, I was planning to write to you about our common salvation, about the things we share together in salvation in Christ. But he was impressed by the Spirit to appeal to them to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The truth of God, there's a finality to it. We live it today where, yeah, the culture changes, society alters. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the unchanging God, His character is unchanging. And the truth that he has given is a consistent truth. It is the once for all faith, that which we believe, which has been handed down to the saints. Why? Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And we're going to see this emphasized as we pick up in a little bit the portion before us today. They've crept in unnoticed. They are ungodly persons. They have never experienced God's saving grace. These are not Christians who perhaps have stumbled along the way. These have never been born again. But somehow they have infiltrated among believers, as we'll see, as they meet together as a local church and local churches, And they haven't been recognized for what they are. And they are doing damage. They have crept in unnoticed. Those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons. We're going to see that when we get down to verse 15. Four times in that one verse. Verse 15 he'll call them ungodly. There is nothing about them that identifies them or connects them to the living God. They are God's enemies, God's opponents. They are a danger to God's people because they have come in among God's people. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the danger. They have infiltrated unnoticed For what they really are. Their true character. And they are undermining the truth. Of God's grace provided in Christ. That's becoming an excuse for ungodly living. And they deny our only master and Lord. Uses two words here. Different words that emphasize. The lordship of Christ. And his absolute authority. And they deny him. They are not living under his authority, but in opposition to his authority. Come back to a passage we looked at earlier in our study of Jude, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul starts this chapter, he's writing to believers, a church of believers. In his first letter, he uh, expresses his confidence that they have placed their faith in Christ. They have been gifted by the Holy Spirit. But the battles along the way have allowed corruption in. And this church is facing the same dangers that Jude writes about. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. He wants to soften the rebuke. Oh, you bear with me in a little foolishness. I know I'm repeating myself. I keep telling you what you already know. And I know you bear with me. I appreciate that. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. You see that picture again of a family relationship. Here husband and wife. We saw it in the letter to Timothy. God's family. God's household. God's household. The pictures that show the intimacy of our relationship with God and one another. And we belong to Christ. We have to be faithful to him. But I am afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. We talked in the previous study about Satan and his authority in the world. And he rules in this world under the ultimate authority of God. But Satan told Christ, the kingdoms of this world have been turned over to me. He is the God of this world, the ruler of this world and this age. Paul's concerned that the influence of Satan has come in among believers. Just like the serpent, Satan deceived Eve by his craftiness that your minds, that's my fear, your minds will be led astray. From the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's not that complicated. You know we say keep it simple stupid. That's what we're talking about. The pure simplicity of the truth. It was given to God's people. It should not be allowed to be altered or removed. We are devoted to him with a pure devotion. A complete devotion. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Something's wrong. You become tolerant. You become open-minded. You know, that's the idea. The world loves tolerance. That's the big key word of today, tolerance, which means accepting the world as the world wants to be. Accepting the world and its opposition to God. How did the world get into the church? We're not saying unbelievers ought to live like believers, but we should not accept as believers the unbelievers. How do they become tolerant? This is what Jude said, isn't it? You deny only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're preaching another Jesus. And not the same thing I preach. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, I don't care if an angel would come from heaven and preach another gospel. He's cursed to hell. There's no excuse for getting deluded. You say maybe you received a Spirit. Maybe they had some kind of supernatural experiences. Doesn't matter. Truth rules. Everything comes to be measured by God's truth. And anything in conflict with that is rejected. That's how it is to be among God's people. It's all about truth. It's not about making you feel good. It's not about having a good time. It's not about the church being a place where your emotions can get stirred. And, oh, I just love that. We have to love the truth, even when it's harsh, even when it's difficult. It's truth. We don't want to bear that beautifully. Come down to verse 13. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, here's the problem, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds." Then he goes on in his personal testimony. Come to the book of Jude. This keeps coming up in Scripture, Old and New Testament alike. We as God's people have to be discerning. We get caught up in all the noises, we say, of the world. You turn on the TV and you watch news and you hear, and it just, somehow, sometimes we get moved off of our foundation. And the church becomes open to people and to teaching that has no place there. That's what Jude's concerned about. This is what God's concerned about with his family. We're all concerned for our families, our physical family. If you've got one kind of difficulty or another in your own family, that's a big concern for you. That involves your thinking. It involves your time. You want to give it attention. You want to do what can be done to fix it. This is God's family. It has to be honoring to him. So that's what Jude is writing about. He's given examples. We shouldn't be deluded and deceived. Satan continues to work the same way. Where did Paul take the Corinthians back? I'm concerned that you'll be deceived by the serpent, the devil, just like Eve was in the garden. I mean, we're all the way back in the garden of Eden. And Satan's doing the same thing millenniums later. The church at Corinth shouldn't be deluded and deceived. We ought to learn how he works. We have the scripture. So Jude is giving examples here as Paul writes to the Corinthians. So Jude here. So verse 5, as we've gone through this, I want to remind you. And he gives then examples from Old Testament history and what's been recorded. Learn from that. When we get to later in Romans, toward the end, we'll be told that the Old Testament scriptures are written for our admonition. We are to learn from them. He then connects it in the examples he gives in verses 5, 6, and 7. Then in verse 8, he says, yet in the same way these men... These who have infiltrated among you, Jude says, they operate the same way because Satan operates the same way. And these are Satan's children. Remember, there are only two categories of people in the world, not the multiplicity of races and not all that that gets all the attention. They're the children of God and the children of the devil, believers and unbelievers. That's the division that exists. That's the one that's foundational to everything. That matters not only for time, it matters for eternity. So these men are the same as those were. And he gives further examples. And very harsh. You know, in all my years of ministry, and one of you will probably come up afterwards and fix that for me, but I don't think I ever met anybody who said, you know, my favorite book in the Bible is the book of Jude. Jude just not that kind of letter maybe because it's so short and probably it's not only short we all love first corinthians 13 the love chapter but jude boy he really comes down on people well yes he does they don't even know what they're talking about he says in verse 10 they revile things they don't understand they have no spiritual perception and understanding Then he gave three analogies and connections to the Old Testament. The situation there. They've gone the way of Cain in verse 11. They've rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. They perished in the rebellion of Korah. See, those Old Testament, they're just not stories for us. But they convey truth from God. And if you're in the way of Cain, in other words, your actions are basically the same as Cain's were. You're in trouble. The heir of Balaam, they took a donkey to correct him, but he still didn't get straightened out. The rebellion of Kara. Don't be like these people. And don't accept people into the congregation who are like these people. So he's going to pick up. In verse 12, where we pick up today, and he's going to drive home the seriousness. The problem is, we as believers, over time, and it happens, little by little, we become more tolerant, more open, less passionate about truth. I think that's one of the most difficult things for the church. Most biblical thing for as a pastor, for you as people, what? For us to remain passionate about the truth. Not just, oh, yeah, I believe the truth. I believe, yeah. The Corinthians would say, yeah, I believe the truth. But it doesn't consume them anymore. It's purity. Well, you know, we've become a little more open. You know, we can't reach the world if they view us intolerant. We can't reach the world if they don't see us as loving. And pretty soon we say, what? We have to become more what the world wants. And some of that first love, as the prophets had to confront Israel about, is gone. God had to say to Israel, I remember your first love. That early devotion. Why should our love weaken? Didn't it get stronger, deeper, more passionate? That's what God is having Jude Write about and maintain your discernment. You have to realize the seriousness of this. Verse 12. He's used examples from the Old Testament in verse 11. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the rebellion of Korah. Now, to our day, Jude says, these are the men. So the present, unbelieving apostates, uh, professing, But not believing, men who have infiltrated among the believers. There's these Old Testament examples. These are the men you're dealing with. Men in the way of Cain. Men following the heir of Balaam. Men in the rebellion of Korah. You know? Do you understand the seriousness of the situation? I mean, how much time do you spend with your children warning them, taking them? In my day, my parents, didn't matter if it was snowing or raining, you know, they put on boots and a snowsuit, sent me out the door to school. Nowadays, you have to take them to school and protect them because you don't know what dangers are along the way and all of that. God's people didn't understand the devil goes about as a roaring lion, He's sending his children and emissaries out everywhere. And his plan among believers, we got to pretend we're like them. Enough so they'll accept us. And then we will corrupt and destroy them. Verse 12, these are the men who are, and he's got five comparisons here. They're hidden reefs. Verse 12, further toward the end of the verse, they are clouds without water. They are autumn trees without fruit. Verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea. They are wandering stars. And nothing good to say about them. You have to recognize them for what they are. They have nothing to offer. They have nothing to give. They are an extreme danger to you. Starts out. These are men who are hidden reefs. No, hidden reefs. are all familiar where boats get caught on a reef. They move toward land. Sailing ships, especially subject to the wind and the waves. But I was watching a program of one of those fishing things. Since I'm such a good big fisherman. They're big, big fishing boats. Got caught. And got pulled in and it got on a reef. And then it was a major thing. You know, the ship's coming apart. The waves are beating on it. Hard for another ship to get in close enough to rescue the crew. Weather's such. You can't bring in a helicopter safe. It's a tragedy. And you see the ship. And they keep saying the ship is going to break up. The men will be lost. What do you, Hidden reefs are a danger. In the days of the sailing ship, they could especially appreciate. But they're hidden reefs. Remember verse 4? Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. This is the danger. There's enough about them that they have been accepted. They are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. The love feast, that's 1 Corinthians 11. Remember the meal the Corinthians were abusing? In early times... The believers gathered together as Christ did with his disciples on the last night. And remember, they had a meal together. Then, after the meal, he took the bread and the cup. We don't have the meal anymore today in most of our churches. We have just the bread and the cup. But in the early days, they did met together for that fellowship meal. Not an evidence of their love and compassion. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians the abuse of it was serious to God. I mean, you treat this lightly. So here, you have these false teachers who are turning grace into licentiousness, who are denying the very character and authority of Jesus Christ, and they're joining in with believers and being welcomed and comfortable. They do it without fear. They're not afraid anybody's going to rebuke them or expose them. They're caring for themselves, and we're caring. We get the word shepherd from it. Pastors are shepherds. Caring, shepherding themselves. That's all they care about. Looking out for me. It's all about me. For them. And they are a hidden reef. You can't just say, well, I don't know they do any harm. They are a harm. When the devil gets his people in close, he has them there for a purpose. How often do you avoid warn your children about? The right kind of friends. And then they'll say, I'm not comfortable with you being a close friend of a person who is. You don't want to be a close friend who's someone doing drugs, getting drunk on weekends, and has a lifestyle like that. You said, Oh, no, what? it might have more effect on you than you realize. But spiritually, we just we don't want to be too narrow. God's concerned that his people be narrow. He's concerned for their spiritual condition and purity. So why would you allow these people in? They're hidden reefs for believers to get spiritual damage. Paul used the same analogy when he wrote to Timothy and said, some men have made a shipwreck of the faith. They've had their faith shattered. True believers get off track. They don't lose their salvation, but their life can become a mess. It's like your physical child. They're still your child, you're still concerned, but they make a mess of their life. You're concerned for them. This is the danger. God doesn't want his people in that position. They're hidden reefs. They don't belong there. They're clouds without water, carried along by winds. No matter what they say, they don't have anything to offer. We go to Colorado, we can look out to the mountains And the clouds come over the mountains. Pikes Peak is there and then the range of the mountains. And it's spectacular in the evening, the sun sets. But the clouds that come, they're always different. We'll talk about. We've taken so many pictures of clouds. But they are amazing and awesome. But you know what? They're in a drought. And these clouds, they come over the mountains. They look so great, but they don't make it. Into the city area. The pond on the golf course that we can look at has shrunk from this large pond to a little bottle of water. You could walk across and get your ankles wet. There's hardly anything in it. Where do the clouds go? You meet people in the elevator, they say, Yeah, saw the clouds, but they'll be gone before they bring any rain to us. Somehow they dissipate. They promise something. They see them coming, Boy, we're really going to get a storm. Nothing happens. That's these people spiritually. They always are acting like they bring something. They offer something. Maybe enhance spirituality. But they're clouds without water, carried along by the winds. They're just going along. And we saw that in Ecclesiastes, carried by the wind, the whim of the wind. Here they're gone, they promise, but they can't deliver. They're autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. The autumn trees, the picture here without fruit, is they've come through the fruit-bearing season. Now the autumn, like we're seeing leaves start to come off and all, fruit season's over. They never did bear any fruit. You know why? They're doubly dead. The point is they're as dead as dead can be. There's no life in them. In fact, they're uprooted. He wants you to understand because we look at some of these people and the devil, when he makes a counterfeit, makes a good one. Remember first corinthians 11 the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. Don't be surprised if his Servants do that and he helps disguise them And so we look at things that draw us to them this Is why I say you don't look at what is good you look at what is bad That way you tell your children The person, if you send your young child off to grade school and somebody pulls up in a nice car with candy, the car may be nice, the candy may be good, but the person is bad and the results are bad. And we use the analogy, you put a few drops of powerful poison in a quart of milk and then offer someone a drink and you say, well, it doesn't matter, it's only a few drops. It's not good milk with a few drops of poison. It's poison milk. Somehow spiritually, well, I don't think we're viewed as we're the only ones, right? We're so narrow. I want to be as narrow as the truth is. I'm not here in a popularity contest. We as a church have been established here, so the world thinks well of us. Why would they think well of us? They're the children of the devil. What makes us think we ought to develop our theology and our conduct around what the world approves of? How do these churches get in this trouble? Jude is writing to believers, and he said, These people have gotten in among the church. Or the churches, how many ever he's writing to. Paul had a right to the Corinthians with the same thing. He had a right to the Galatians with the same thing. You want to follow the line, go from Jude to Revelation 2 and 3 and read Christ's last letter to his churches. And he's having to deal with the same thing. And rebuking for the same errors. They are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Quit thinking you're going to find something good. They cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit because they have no life from the Spirit. They're wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame-like foam. Some issues I was involved in many years ago and some books have been written and Men started out and they were acclaimed as evangelical. There's something wrong. Their teaching is contrary to the word in key areas. And now that very man is an avid advocate of homosexual lifestyles. And well, we should have picked it up much earlier. Why are we calling him an evangelical? Well, he said he believes some of the things we do, and he was in an evangelical school. It gets repeated over and over and over again. They're wild waves of the sea. We're familiar with it with our television today. You get pictures of the storms even if you've never been to the ocean. Some of you have been to the ocean. You go to the ocean after a storm and there's all kind of junk up there. Where did it all come from? It just seems to build it and pull it from wherever. What they're stirring up like the waves is their own shame like foam. The foam, the white caps, it just, that's what the unbeliever does. He can't bring anything out of the treasure of his heart. Because the evil man out of that evil heart brings evil things. He can't bring good things to the church. Part of the corruption that has had such an impact on evangelical Christianity was the commitment to have an impact and an acceptance in the world because we're scholars. The only realize that we have a mind, and we can think clearly, and our scholarship should be accepted by the world. It will never be. because the issue is not scholarship, the issue is not science. The issue is spiritual. We don't get things from the world. People have gone through written they take a survey in your neighborhood for what people are looking for in a church, and that'll help you adapt your church to be effective in your neighborhood. How does this stuff get accepted among believers? In the church that is to be the pillar and support of the neighborhood's ideas? Of the truth. Come back to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57. Just one verse. Isaiah 57. Verse 15. It's not where we're coming for. But it's such a great verse. I'll have to read it to you while we're here. For thus says the high and exalted one. Who lives forever. Whose name is holy. Holy. Remember, we are called holy saints, holy ones, because he is holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. I dwell on on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Come down to verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Look at our country. Look at our society. What's happening? Going crazy. It's irrational. It's madness. It's destructive. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. Well, if you had enough money, you'd be peaceful and happy. It doesn't work that way, does it? They find that some of the rioters have come from well-to-do homes. Well, they're rioting for someone else. There is no peace, says my God to the wicked. They're like the waves of the sea. Same analogy Jude as He probably drew it from Isaiah. They're like the wild waves of the sea. Why would we bring them in among us? Welcome them. They're going to bring peace, order, they're wandering stars for whom the black darkness, the blackness of darkness, has been reserved for forever. Wandering stars, they're here and they're gone. You know, more be like the shooting stars of the comets. They appear in the dark and they're gone. They're doomed for the darkness. They may come as a light. But they come from darkness they're going to darkness it's not true light it's just a passing because they've adapted I am amazed at how much truth I can read in a person who is clearly an unbeliever it is startling you read it and say wow they really are clear Then you read something else they write and they're denying the word of God and open about it. That's where you have to be careful. Put it together. I could give other examples, but I won't. The blackness of darkness is reserved for them. You know, we saw this up regarding the angels in verse 6. These angels are kept in eternal bonds under darkness. Darkness is a future of unbelieving angels and unbelieving people, humans. That word, you may have it marked It's one of the verbs I told you to mark in verse 6. He has kept, has kept. It's the same word as you have translated reserved down at the end of verse 13. The blackness of darkness has been kept, has been reserved. It's the same thing, but we have them translated differently. Remember in Matthew 25, Jesus will say to the unbelievers, depart from me, cursed ones, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, hell is a place of burning fire, an eternal blackness of darkness. Some people say, "Why fire bright? I don't know. I shared with you one article I read. I wish I kept it of a firefighter and a, suit for going into a fire said I was shocked I thought it would be very bright when I got in there but it was pitch black I don't know I've never tried to verify that oh I know as God says hell will be burning fire an eternal blackness of darkness you don't get any darker than that some of you live in the country I said to Marilyn the other night we were at. I said let's take a ride outside the city and see how dark it is we turned out turn down a road you know you turn out the lights I admire you for living there. I know the city has a lot of bad things that can go on. I've traveled in and out of Center City, Philadelphia, day and night for years. But I don't like the darkness. (laughs) And it's dark in the country. Well, you know, hell is going, you know, you feel isolated. You look around. So dark, it seems like you can't see your hand in front of your face. That's hell. People say, Oh, my friends will be there. I don't doubt that. But there isn't going to be any fellowship in hell. It's blackness of darkness. And how terrible is it? With indescribable suffering of fire. I don't think God would do that. Well, He's the God who cannot lie. I can't imagine it either, any more than I can imagine all the glories of heaven for eternity. But I'll take God's word for both. And once you begin to deny the truth of God's words, and many who professed to be evangelicals for much of their life departed, and now it's become acceptable to deny an eternal hell and still be accepted as an evangelical. Well, what part of the Bible can you deny and still be accepted? And if there's no eternal hell, well, salvation is good, you'll get better things, but the worst that happens to you is nothing. And you see, the devil finds his way to play on our emotions. And soon soon I make decisions on emotions rather than here's what God says. What can I say? I can't imagine a place that terrible either, but I don't have to imagine that God tells me it exists. And there'll be people there. All I know is, I sure don't want to be one of those that are there. Well, then believe in the salvation he's provided, and you'll be in that glorious place he promised. I understand. None of those, quote, evangelicals who now deny hell also deny heaven. You start to pick out and choose. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I don't think God could do that. Pretty soon, a person's individual choices become sovereign. It's what I agree with and what I think. The blackness of darkness. Now, these are the people that have been accepted at their love feast without fear of being exposed or rebuked. They have crept in unnoticed, and they are a destructive force of Satan to ruin individual believers' lives and to destroy churches. When Christ comes, this is where he goes in verse 14. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. So we know who we're talking about. We're talking about the Enoch who's the seventh generation from Adam. We're not going to turn back there because of time. But if you go to chapter 5 of Genesis and you can count the genealogies. And I think it's about verse 24, but don't hold me to that. You come to Enoch. And if you count the generations from Adam and Hebrews have an inclusive counting. In other words, when it says the seventh generation from Adam, that includes Adam. So you count down and you'll find number seven is Enoch. So we know who we're talking about. He prophesied. We don't have a record of that prophecy. Other than his name in a genealogy, I think in Chronicles, Hebrews chapter 11 is the only other reference to Enoch. But what we're being told here, what has Jude been doing? Taking us back. He's all back in the Garden of Eden. And we're back to Cain. Killing his brother Abel. We're now we're back to the seventh generation. First man identified as a prophet. And it's Enoch. Now there's a apocryphal book. It's a collection of really five books put together and called First Enoch. That was in existence sometime before Christ, 100, 200 years, and there's debate over. And he has some material similar to what we might have here in other places. And I think, well, Jude probably drew from that. And the Spirit of God might have used him, having preserved certain truth to select out. Otherwise, it could be something was just passed down orally, or the Spirit of God could have revealed it to him. The point is, it's prophetic here. I am so weary of people, you know, evangelicals. They want to show their scholarship. They are into all the extra biblical stuff you can find. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced in my mind that fishermen like Peter, James, and John, and when they weren't fishing, we find them mending their nets, We're going to the library because, remember, you just didn't get on your internet and call up First Enoch. And you couldn't go to the bookstore and get a copy. Remember, these are on parchment or vellum, animal skin. You go to the library and you're going to read this. It's sure there were scholarly people who did, but I'm not sure everybody was familiar with all this material as I, as I read. Well, all of the Jews would have been familiar with this. Well, everybody would have known this. It's like today. Not everybody knows things. You may be reading some stuff and you're really interested in it and you talk to somebody else sitting next to you. He doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. He doesn't read that. He doesn't care. Well, at any rate, Enoch was a prophet. How do I know that? God says through Jude, Enoch was a prophet and he prophesied. And what's interesting is what he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Remember the Old Testament prophets? It was what we call the prophetic past. The prophetic perfect, the prophetic past. In other words, they often gave their prophecies in the past tense when clearly they were talking about a future event. Why? Because when they spoke what God told them to speak, it was as good as done. What God has prophesied that will take place in the future is just as sure and settled as yesterday's news. I mean, it's done. It just has to be accomplished, but there's no doubt about it. So here you have Enoch, you would expect that Old Testament prophet, prophesying the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. The prime reference would be the angels. Matthew 25, at the second coming of Christ, he comes with myriads of his angels. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Christ comes to mete out vengeance and he comes with thousands of his angels and Then in revelation 19 the fuller details of his coming and we find we'll come with him Because we are holy ones as well We'll be part of that, but enoch the seventh we're long before noah here You're gonna get methuselah and then you're gonna get noah. We're gonna put some time in here But he's prophesying about the coming of the lord With his angels. So revelation had been given. Not all of it was recorded. We can be thankful for that. How would you like it if I had to tell you next Sunday, bring volume 932 from your Bibles. Because we'll be looking into that. So what God has done is recorded for us what is necessary. But that's not all that was known. Obviously here we have... Prophecy being given by Enoch regarding what we would call the second coming of Christ. Because this world would take the intervention of God to what? Look at verse 15. What is he coming for? To execute judgments. And this is the word. You'll have the word all used four times in verse 15 and you'll have the word ungodly used four times. It is an all-encompassing judgment. It is thorough. And it involves all, every ungodly person. That's the focus. To execute judgment upon all. To convict all the ungodly. Reveal them for what they are. There will be no doubt. We had a Supreme Court justice pass away. Was involved in decisions. But you know, there is the Supreme Judge before whom the Supreme Court Justice and every other person stands. The unbeliever to be judged and sentenced to hell. The believer, at a different judgment as we've seen as Scripture progressively unfolds, to be rewarded and brought into The presence of God. He's going to bring judgment on all to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's complete. Jesus said every word, every careless word, every word against him, against the living God, will be brought into that judgment. Oh. How do you keep track of that? We're talking about God. My finite mind doesn't have to be able to grasp and fill in all the details of what God has made known. I know this is going to happen. Well, I can't see how. Well, wait a minute. I only know what God has revealed. Then I've got my hands full, getting my finite mind around it. Eternity. I sit sometimes in my chair and think, God had no beginning. There was never a time when he wasn't. Gil, think about that. Where do I go with that? Well, I go, keep going back, 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 back. There's never a back behind God because he always was. I have no way. My mind, I just have to leave it. So here, he's going to bring judgment. Their deeds have been ungodly. Oh, I know people who do good deeds. Remember we talked about the foundation. Did it come out of a heart committed to God? submissive to him with a desire to bring glory to him? No, then it wasn't a good deed. I'm not saying there's not relative good in the world. But as God is going to exercise judgment, the unbeliever never does good. That what we have... In Psalm 14, in Romans 3, none does good. Oh, well, I see unbelievers do good. Yeah, and I've had unbelievers treat me very nicely, but they weren't doing it out of a heart that was submissive to God. Bringing him honor, it's not good. That's why I talked about we want to be careful. We keep our perspective in the world doesn't mean I'm not appreciative of God's common grace that provides a world where I can be free here in a context to preach the word. How long will I have that? I don't know. We're to pray for rulers, those in authority that we might have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We're not here to fix the world. We're here to bring redemption to the lost in the world. So judgment is coming. It will come. It will compass every deed. It will compass every word. It will compass every person. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. When all's all said and done, and with the judgments that are revealed, everyone will have been stood before this God. People act like it's a light thing. I am in awe that a person and people can sit as judges, but never give thought that they will give an account To the judge of all mankind. What a shock. What a thought. Eternity begins. I missed what really matters. We honor people after they're gone. What matters is any honor they'll get after they're gone, where they're going. Lose that perspective. All right, we have to wrap it up with verse 16, and we'll be picking up here. These are grumblers finding fault. Well, that seemed like a step down. I mean, everybody grumbles. I mean, let's not get carried away, Jude. These are grumbles. This is the same one in verse 12. He said, these are the men who are. Verse 14, it was about these men. And now he says in verse 16, these are grumblers finding fault. Well, think about it. Grumbler. Gongustai. Sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? It's one of those words that its sound conveys what it means that you know you like your mumbling grumble, yeah, they're always something they're finding fault. This is the problem. You know what they saint Tenfield them in, then pretty soon, well, you know, yeah, there's good here, but you know what I, I don't like about here, you know what I don't agree with. You know this and this think about it as believers believers are not we don't have time to go there now but believers are not to mumble and complain grumble and complain Israel's the example in the Old Testament in fact this word words are used when they translated the Old Testament into Greek or Israel grumbling who am I grumbling against I believe in the sovereignty of God I believe that he rules over all and he controls my life and he directs every day and he's brought into my life for today what he chooses and I'm grumbling and complaining who am I complaining about well my wife oh who gave you that wife well God who planned this day don't try to get her out of it it's her fault oh wait a minute I'm really complaining about God You know, oh, I don't, wait a minute. Maybe God brought even unfair things into my life because he wants me to mature and grow and handle it properly. Isn't that what happened to Job? Yeah, but I don't want it to happen to me. So mumbling, grumbling, finding fault? Well, I want to be careful. That's not pointing out error that's in conflict with the word. Of course we do. But they're grumblers. They find fault. We'll get to, not today, verse 19. These are the ones who cause divisions. How does churches get split so much? Maybe we ought to consider Jude, grumbling, finding fault. They cause divisions. Maybe, I don't know, every person has to examine their own heart. Well, what's the problem here? Is it a theological? No, it's not theological. Well, we've got a spiritual problem here. It's not theological. Yet you're making an issue causing division. Had someone come to visit me not long ago from another church. I said, what are you here for? Your intention to cause division in that church? What's the doctrinal issue? Well, it's not a doctrinal issue. What are they telling you to do? Well, they're not. Then why don't you go home? Thank God that you've got a church where the word of God by your own testimony is being preached. And mind your own business. And to credit, with my great advice, which is just biblical, he sent me a note and thanked me, he's gone on. Good. What do we have mumbles and grumblers for? Stop it. And you know where I can stop it? I'm not open to hear it. Finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So you find out how they got in. They're good at working people. That's how con men are, isn't it? That's how they get people to give their money to schemes that aren't, you know, solid and sound investments. Or any other con scheme. That's what they are. They're driven by their own loss. They're selfish. But they know how to work people. We want to be careful. We want to be a church that's faithful. We start with individually, that's my commitment. And that's our commitment together as God's family in this place. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the riches and the clarity of your word. We want to take it to heart. Lord, may we examine ourselves personally, our relationship with you, our conduct our commitment to truth. May we as a church be honoring to you in all our activities and all our teaching. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sound Words, a ministry of Indian Hills Community Church. Make sure to download our app from iTunes or Google Play for more messages like the one you just heard. If you would like to contact us, please email soundwords at ihcc.org or give us a call at 402-483-4541.